Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? The themes of the collection shine bright as the author tells us of the sensual, bold, and unforgiving experiences of growing up black in America. Shouts Mad Creek Books, an imprint of the Ohio State University Press about our esteemed guest's latest collection of work, A More Perfect Union. Terry Ellen Cross Davis works her experience, music, identity, sexuality, and vulnerability into the power of poetry. Terry is unafraid to change the narrative and swim under the sea of truth. She is a distinguished scholar and author, with her multi-award winning collections of movements through her revolutionary thought. As if this all weren't impressive enough, Terry is a mother of two, a wife, and an artist. As a bonus track, she's also a huge fan of Donna Summer and Prince. We can't wait to listen to the beauty of her colorful words as she shares her story with us today. Welcome, Terry Ellen Cross Davis. All right, excellent. Hi, Terry. Hi, hi, JD. It's a pleasure to have you here today, and thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolutely, and shout out to my Smithy Zena, who connected us. Much appreciation for that. I understand you and Zena's kids go to school together. Is that correct? They do. Uh, okay. They are both at an independent school right at the edge of the DC border to Maryland, and it's a school we love and cherish. Excellent, excellent. Well, happy to have you. So. Let's get started with my fascination with poets. I mean, I, yeah, there's no other way to put it. I'm just, I'm fascinated by poets. So what were the influences that led you to start writing poetry? I have to thank my mother because she taught me to read to Nikki Giovanni's poetry. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You know, and um, shout out to inventive and creative parents who do things like that because it warped my brain in really great ways. You know, just to be five or six and and think about clouds being like cotton candy, thanks to all the beautiful language in Nikki Giovanni's work. So that that really opened me up to the possibilities of language. And then having a house full of books. My mother had me reading Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings at 12, along with some Carlos Castaneda. So <laughs> mysticism in the desert mixed with, but I kind of figured it out only in the last year what she did by doing those two things. So all of that and having a great appreciation for literature, having books in the house, that's what did it. But how did your mom know this is what I need to do to embed the importance of language in your mind? Were, were there words that she attached to the words or was she just like, read, just keep reading? You know what I mean? It was, I think it, I, you know, I really have to ask her to be honest. Um, I did ask her about some later things that she had me reading. This early thing, picking Nikki Giovanni as a primary text for a child. I mean, granted, I guess I was a precocious child reading at four, you know, like it, it just, I don't know why she made that choice, but it left an indelible impression on my brain and it put my brain into a cast that I can never shake off. And I'm so grateful for it because poetry is where my heart and my soul is. And that's where my people are. Yeah, that's amazing. I, yeah, I'd love to know when you when you ask her, please get back to me. Let me know. I'm, I'm, I'm equally fascinated by that. So at what point did you decide I'm a poet? 
it wasn't until 1999, you know, I wrote my first poem in third grade um, about a squirrel. Um, <laughs> I started a poetry club in high school. Uh, you know, I did all these things, but it wasn't until 1999 when I had my first publishing credit and that I also attended the first year of Cave Canem for me, which is a home for Black poets, started by Toy Derricott and Cornelius Eady. And that that first trek up to Esopus, New York, um, to stay in a monetary, in monastery for a week and learn from people like Lucille Clifton and Sonia Sanchez and Michael Harper and Elizabeth Alexander and Harriet Mullen. It just, oh, it, it left an impression. <laughs> and I realized all the weird quirks I'd had all my life, <laughs> it made me fit right in. All that high emotion, all the love of literature just totally fit right in. Do you think we're all poets at heart? I think we can be. And I think we have to let loose the constrictions that society presses upon us to navigate our souls in such a way to make us more consumable. You know, like I truly do. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, so we could be. Yeah. That's a tall order, though, in a white supremacist society to let go while you have to hold back. Yeah. But I tell you who, who the real poets are. The real poets are the children. Because they haven't learned to constrict themselves in their thought process yet. They don't have the boundaries that we impose upon ourselves or the boundaries that we don't know enough to free ourselves from. They don't have them yet. And so the way they put language together, I made sure that my children knew poetry early on. You bring up an interesting point, which is, again, it's kind of the theme we were on in last week's show. The idea that, you know, the classroom can make or break a kid. So when you talk about kids being poets, if there's a teacher who doesn't see the light and this child and stifles it for something that's more mainstream and conducive to what they need to get done for that semester, that could force a child to lose that light or lose that ability, lose that language that's really theirs, huh? It really can. I think I'm married to a teacher, you know, to an English teacher and to a poet. You know, they have to tap into that nurturing part and just recognize when there's an opportunity to plant a seed rather than to stomp it out, just Mm. to fit in. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of fitting in. (laughs) Oh, nor am I. We'll we'll be just fine. (laughs) So how has being a Black daughter, Black woman, wife, mother, how's that all informed your journey as a poet? It's left such a big mark on me. I think it shapes me and I think it helps me make make me into a better poet. Um, and that's just for me, because I know there are many poets out there who are, you know, not coupled up, who have not spawned. Um, and I've done both of those. Um, but it's it's forced me to open my heart wider to accept more love and more possibility in the small people I've created. It's forced me to acknowledge the ancestral pain and hurt and fear of motherhood as a black mother in this country. I've had to reckon with that from the moment he said to me, it's a girl. And all of a sudden I realized not only did I have to reckon with the ideas of race, I had to reckon with gender. And I had to reckon with how society views women sometimes as something to consume and spit out. And and so that, that too. Mm. It's been a huge part of your journey. It sounds like each part of yourself has 
kind of integrated into the other and, and really just spilled out a lot of feeling emotion and really informed it. I mean, that's really just the best way to put it. Yeah. These identities I hold, they are anchors. They weigh me to this moment. Um, and sometimes if you're not careful, they can sink you and they can drown you. And, and it's just how to have this balance, this push and pull so that I can still have this identity as mother, but I also nurture my identity as a poet. I can have this identity as sister and daughter and wife, but I still have to nurture my soul as a poet and leave space for that. I love how you put that. I'm just taking that in. I can really, it's, it's like a texture you just offered me. I really can feel that. Yeah, that's cool. So I believe you said you're heavily influenced by the news cycle in many ways. Can you talk about that? I am. My uh, undergraduate degree is in journalism, actually. And for a good five years, I was a talk radio show producer. So I was inundated every day with NPR as the show I produced at one point had been syndicated with them when I started on. And I had to absorb the news cycle uh, just so I could absorb it and then figure out a way to craft a conversation around it on a daily basis, (laughs) two times a day for five days a week. It fed my insatiable curiosity. I have an intellectual curiosity about this world, how it works and the people in it. And so it fed that. Seeing technology, seeing science blossom and change before our own eyes, it also it also leaves its mark. And it just makes me even more curious about how we are and why we are and why we do what we do. I think that's that's also interesting because for a lot of people who are that who are that attached to journalism and news, I would imagine that could kill your create your creativity. So, you know, that's interesting how that fed it instead. I have a, a huge, a huge heart. And that was part of the issue when I was in junior high and high school. Um, and I wear it on my sleeve. And again, part of the issue, not an easy thing to do in junior high and high school because you're an easy mark. Right. But that, that my love for humanity, even if I have issues with some of the people sometimes, most of the time, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> but my love of humanity never wavers because I'm so enthralled with the possibilities of how good we can be and the societies that we can create if we had the right impetus, if we had the right infrastructure, if we had the right guidance. Um, so that's where it, it stays alive, because I, I, I think I look for those moments where the light is glinting this way on the diamond that is us and just trying to figure out how best to stay in the warmth of that light and to see the brilliance of the rainbow in it. Yeah. And I guess, you you know, holding that light is so important when you have children I and mean, you have to find some hope and, and keep it lit. You have to guide. That is the hardest part for me right now. I, I, I've been asking a lot of older black people, like, how do you not get bitter? Because now I see what I've heard for so long, because I have a tendency to talk to my elders. I, I love it. You know, I was recording my grandmother and my great aunt for the last like, couple of years of their lives because I recognized that they were a wealth of knowledge. Um, so I often I've just lately been asking people, how do you not get bitter? And I think having children does help. Um, but it also has that. I'm trying to battle with the fear that is also created within me um, to have my heart's walking outside my body like this and in a society that does not see them for who they are. Um, 
It's so it's, but I will say they, the joy and the wonder and the all that they share with me and show me on a daily basis, it does help. Well, that's a, that's a perfect segue. In your words, I am a black poet who will not remain silent while this nation continues to murder black people. I have a right to be angry. Will you talk about Knucklehead, the inspiration for that? And will you actually read it for us? I will. I was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. And when Tamir Rice was murdered at the age of 12, it left me reeling because I thought, you know, I know, how can you not have your kid go outside and play? You know, the violence that is threaded through the American culture and it's, it's love of guns. You know, how can you keep these things, even if play guns, you know, and even now I still won't let my son play with any kind of toy gun, because I've explained to him, you, you, I'm so sorry. This world is the way it is, but you can't do this. You know, you can't because there's a possibility people won't see you. They won't know you're this, you know, this really creative kid who loves Legos and, and loves anime. They won't see that. They'll see what they want to see. So I said, sometimes the poem has to say it for me. Um, so I'll, I'll read Knucklehead. Uh-oh. And so knucklehead. My son's head is a fist rapping against the door of the world. For now, it's dressers, kitchen islands, dining room tables that coax his clumsy, creating small molehills of hurt breaching the surface. The ice pack, a cold kiss to lessen the blow, equals a frigid intrusion. A boy cannot be a boy with all this mothering getting in the way. Sometimes, Four plays accomplice, snagging an ankle, top lip to swell. Other times, it's a tantrum. When he spills his limbs onto the hardwood, frenzied and limp with anger, tongue clotted with frustration, a splay of two-year-old emotion voiced in one winding wail. My son cannot continue this path. Black boys can't lose control at 12, 18, even 43. They don't get do-overs. So I let him flail about now, let him run headfirst into the wall, learn how unyielding perceptions can be, bear the bruising now before he grows, enters a world too eager to spill his blood, too blind to how red it is. I take a breath. Yeah, so that 12 is for Tamir Rice, that 18 for Michael Brown, and that 43 for Eric Garner. So you have a conversation ongoing with your son, yeah, with your children. It, yeah, I do. And I, I'm, I get so angry that I have to constrict the ways in which he can play. But I'm excited because there are other ways I, I, I see his brain expanding. Are you concerned about, you know, so the idea that he goes to the school, it's kind of a little bit of a bubble. You know, how do you, how do you manage that? Because I see that a lot. You know, with kids who have, you know, different opportunities who are brown and black, and then they still have to, they're walking on in two worlds. How do, how do you help him navigate that? I, um, it's really funny, but I try my best to um, give him a little bit of both worlds. Now, I recognize I grew up learning like code switching in itself, right? I grew up learning about code switching and, and begin to code switch early especially when I uh, moved to Washington, D.C. when I was 16 to become a congressional page. 
It also helped that my grandmother had me up front in front of the church reading the morning announcements and the welcome. So I had to learn how to, you know, be eloquent and, and enunciate for a crowd early on in life. The funny thing is my kids are the opposite. Like I, I have had to teach them more black vernacular because I find it beautiful. I find it musical. I find it deep with texture and story, right? Just the things. My mother taught yeah. me, what was this phrase? She said, what you getting a giddy up is what you getting around up. It's like, where <laughs> did that come from? And you, know, and, you know, and of course there's, you ain't got a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. <laughs> you got nothing. We can't, we can't lose those. Those are right. our new tradition. That's our new storytelling. And so I've actually worked to introduce this vernacular in when it with my children at home and to explain okay. that they are living in a society where right now they're on one track to be in one world, but they have to they have to be in connection and in contact and communion and community, communion and community with their black with the black world. They have to. Because these are the people that will take them in when everyone else says no. These are the people yes. that will make sure they have a plate of food wherever they go to school. These are the people who will look out for them. If it's just two of them in a room, they have to know this language. They have to know it. They're, they're, they're so, yeah, I've been actually doing a reverse instruction, if you will. <laughs> That's great. I I always have concerns about that with kids who are in environments that don't, white spaces, they don't naturally, you know, nurture that part of themselves. And it, it is so important. It's why I believe so strongly in HBCUs. Yeah. It's like, you know, being able to just get it, get it where you can get it is so important. You know, it just helps to fill you up in so many ways that are important to live in society. So I love that you're doing that. Yeah. I've been subtly like hinting to our HBCUs <laughs> to them. Like, I just want them to have the balance. Mm-hmm. Get, them, get them visiting early. Yeah, that's what I need to do. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about, uh, what is it? Furious Flower Poetry Center. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Talk about that. Furious Flower is great. Um, I say they started in 1994 with a conference and... Yeah. And the, and the whole, even just the title came from a Gwendolyn Brooks poem. But they started in 1994 in James Madison University in Harrisonburg, uh, Virginia. And Joanne Gabin was like the main like engine behind all of it. And she recently retired. And um, Lauren K. Allen, who was the assistant director for Fierce Flowers, now moving into the directorship. Yay, Lauren. And <laughs> yeah, they're just an incredible organization that supports and actually does like the research and in and holds on to materials about black culture via poetry, like just via poetry. So I, I love Fierce Flower and I think I think the world of them. So they're they're in full effect, they're functioning, they're they're alive. Yes. People can find them and learn about them. And give to them and support them because they're one of the few yeah. like repositories for black poetry. They really keep it. Yeah, alive. that was great to read. Yeah. Like I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh no, I said they're and they're just there. It's we it's they're necessary to keep alive. And it's they function a little different yeah. than like Cave Canum, where where Cave Canum you go for a week and you learn from some of the <laughs> biggest names in black poetry. Okay. And it fosters a, a a family feeling too. So I, I think of of a Furious Flower and Cave Canum often at, together, um, just because of the importance of what they do. 
and and why we why we need it. Yeah, that's why I wanted to mention it because I, I was fascinated reading about it. I was like, I, I've never heard of it. So it's just, there's so much out there to find out. And, and I want to be able to give voice to it because I think it's a great opportunity for people to learn and support. So that's why I wanted you to talk about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. They, I'm glad it means. They have a great anthology, Furious Flower does, and they just put out a new one. I want to say that was last year. I think Knucklehead is in that one. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's cool. So I took a deep dive into your poetry. I felt so much when I was reading it, quite honestly. And, you know, I'm the type of person that if I, if I don't feel the funk, I can't fake the funk. That's just how I am. So I, I felt so many of them and I just pulled a few as I gave you in the chat. And I'm wondering if you'll, you'll pick a few to read and talk about the inspiration. Oh, sure. So I love to share some of these goddess poems. So I grew up loving Greek mythology, and it was like the gateway drug to other mythologies. You know, Because once you do Greek, then it's like, oh, there's Roman. And then because I was a Marvel fan, I will dabble in DC Comics too. But because I was a Marvel fan, there was Norse mythology because of Thor. And then there was Egyptian mythology, which I definitely fell down that hole. So all that, plus being a comic book head, made it quite easy for me to think, oh, you know, let me do these goddesses. Well, it made it easy for me to, to make them. But I will say, I was talking with another poet and she gave me the thought. She was like, well, why don't you just write your own goddess? And I was like, what? <laughs> really? I love that. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> and then once I had, once she said that, all these goddesses started breathing down my neck, <laughs> trying to get out. <laughs> they were like, hey, Terry, what about scars? Hey, Terry, what about parenting? Hey, Terry, what about lust? Hey, Terry, what about anger? And it was like, it, I wanted to tackle the things that sometimes it feels like in society we're not allowed to do. And I feel like being angry is, as a black person in this country, we're not allowed to be angry because, it, I mean, right. I can't even take you to the times people said they were afraid of me and I'm like five, three. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Well, I gotta, I gotta tell you the, the, uh, the goddess of cleaning brought up my sister, Charlene. Mm. I can't even tell you. That's like black household 101. Um, seven years old, my sister waking us up, yelling what we needed to do and how we needed to make it seem and feel. That was just so real for me. I, I got such a kick out of that. <laughs> and then the scars as well. Those really hit me hard. So I'll just hit you with both of those then. So here's the, okay, right here's the goddess of cleaning. And when I often talk about this poem, I talk about my great aunt and my grandmother who are both domestics when they came from Arkansas to mm -hmm. Cleveland. And um, my grandmother was able to make enough money as a domestic to buy her own home. So I just want to lift that up and lift up the trade, lift up the women who occupy those spaces, the brown and black bodies Absolutely. in those spaces who are often made to be invisible. And they are not, they are loved ones. They have identities. And so this goddess is my way of speaking to them and lifting them up too. And also a shout out to chores because man, chores. <laughs> <laughs> so here you go. The goddess of cleaning. I bequeath you bleach. It's singeing sting. I bequeath you the scrub brush, best done on hands and knees. I bequeath you ammonia for the exorcism of dirt. I bequeath you power over clutter, the washing machine spin, the dryer's lint grin. I bequeath you the salvation of sweeping, a consecrated grip on the broomstick. I bequeath you the dustpan's collection plate, 
The floor's sanctified echo, the trash bin's penitent face. I bequeath you the gospel of a mop, the sacred slosh of a rinse bucket's second coming. I bequeath you the torn t-shirt as rag, the two-sided sponge, vinegar and newspaper squeak, the glass free of streak. I bequeath you an old toothbrush for tiles hard to reach grime. I bequeath you the grunt and scrub of wool, the eradication of rust. Trust in me, I baptize you in sweat, labor's batific stain. I bequeath you the power to change, one room at a time. Mm. I love that. Because that's just, in the end, especially during this pandemic, we can't we can't change the world, but gosh darn it, I can keep this room clean. You know, there's one thing I can do. <laughs> And and it's a small power, but it is still a power, right? You know, and, and also, Terry, the, you know, I've done cleaning. I mean, my dad ran a, a part-time cleaning business. My sister has a cleaning business. Like it's in our, it's in our culture, you know, to put things together, hold things together, you know, keep things in a certain way. I mean, that's such a metaphor for, for what we've had to do all of our lives. And so the idea of just bleach alone, I don't know a black person who doesn't know the importance of bleach. And I talk to my white friends and they're like, you'll put a little bleach in your dishwater. <laughs> it was it was a revelation for my biracial husband. He was like, what? And I was like, dude, trust me. <laughs> you just got to do it. Just, just when you need that extra clean, just you need to be sure that it's really clean. <laughs> That's right. That's great. Okay. Do another one. <laughs> so here's the goddess of scars. And this was a little deep dive for me into dermatology. <laughs> the goddess of scars. I mark you with melanin, a crosshatch of collagen. Better the scar than the loss of limb. Better the clean line, raised itch, festering wound, beckoning death. My apostles, my keloids, my atrophic, my contractures, my hypertrophic response. Each a love I bear to the mammal of you, the ruptured vessel, the broken-in dermis. Consider my evolution a song to survival. Consider cells my priests, their work, a ladder of prayer, each stitch an epistle. I grieve to see you separate from yourself. My atonement is a bridge to build you back together. While you can never be born again, you can recover. Each time I sign you, witness the parable of action and consequence. I do not think you show enough reverence. You were never meant to be a smooth canvas, but a texture, a testament. I bless you with the story, and each and every time you live to tell the tale. I love that. Look, you know, it's just so deep in metaphors. I, I just, I absolutely love it. It's great. Look, we could go on like this forever. I know I asked you to pick them, but it turns out I'm picking them. <laughs> what about if we do, <laughs> what about if you wrap up with uh, when I'm the only one in the room? Oh yeah. As we talk about code switching. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. <laughs> As we talk about code switching. I got all it. I got all excited and then just took it over and didn't even give you the choice. I'm sorry. Oh, I love it. I love it. I appreciate hearing what resonated with you. That gives me so much joy. Trust me. It's, okay, cool. You write all this stuff in isolation. It's just, it lives in your head or when you're, you know, when you finally get to a residency or somewhere to write and you never know how it's going to hit, you know, you're like, I know what I know, but I don't know if what I know is what other right. people know too. 
<laughs> so here you are when I am the only one in the room. The southern roots of y'all makes music in my mouth's map. In the north, I cuff the sea hard for couplet, then soften it for child and chain. When booking, I drop the G. Depending on the audience, I find it again running. By 10, I knew when to let the W whistle in whom, but darken the room for the D to fall asleep in. I don't know nothing, but the beauty of when a double negative will do. How to make this English buck, then soft shoe when I see you. I love that. <laughs> Absolutely love. So good. Thank you. Really, really just so appreciate what you do. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit and ask you about the husband you mentioned. Mm. So you have so much in common, I read, you know, that you have, I mean, music, uh, poetry, language, just so many things in common. What's what's the secret to your bond? If you had to summarize it, what would you say? It is? I think it is having all those things in common because it gives us shared goals and it gives us um, a way to communicate always. Um being both poets and being that communication is our strong suit as poets, we can find the language when other words won't do. Uh, I, I intentionally married a poet <laughs> and I told him so. And at one point he did say, oh, you know, I'm going to stop writing. I was like, no, you're not, because if you do, I will divorce you. OK, because this was intentional. Don't you can't mess this up. But um, I will say that's it, because this is tr like we rarely argue. I think we argue like maybe once a, twice every couple of years. It's I actually asked my children, I was like, when's the last time you see mommy and daddy argue? And they looked at each other like, I don't know. I was like, I do want you to understand that is rare. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just we don't. We we one of the secrets I will say is not is a not going to bed angry. Realizing um, as you're about to get into if you're about to get into some sort of snit, are you hungry or do you need a nap? <laughs> Because a sandwich and a nap will change your outlook right away. <laughs> and it's like, it's so simple. But that's how we have not uh, fought for so long. <laughs> because you can say, like, you know what? I just might be hangry. Come back to me in about 30 minutes and let's have this whole conversation again. That's like the beauty of timeout. Yes. Yes. Right? Don't yes. underestimate the power of a timeout. That's what I tell people all the time. Yeah. Timeout's your friend. <laughs> so... Before we end, I want to make sure that we get out everything that you've done, where they can find your book, you, um, anything they want to know. So would you just give a rundown of, of where to find your books and so forth? Actually, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you can find my books on Amazon. You can find them on bookshop.org if you want to get out of the whole corporate behemoth. Um, you can also buy it directly from Ohio State University. It's on their site. Um, I actually think they're you will yeah they have like different specials at different times of the year um so that's where those are and and even my first book Hank, you can find it too on amazon and on bookshop and through the publisher javal press g-i-b-a-l press um which is a great small independent press in virginia um i'll be out and about i've been doing events i just got uh in from an event at um with Shippingsburg University. Um, and I'm going to a reading uh, later on tonight. I'll be reading for um, a Black-owned bookstore in D.C., Solid State Books. Shout out, Solid State. Um, and I'll also be the poet in residence uh, for Salisbury, Maryland next next week, for a whole week, basically. Um, 
No, thank you. I'm really looking forward to, you know, being in the classroom, talking to kids, to meet the mayor and do all kinds of things and run a couple of poetry readings. So, and workshops too, but yeah. And it's so stuff is out there. You can also find my work on the Academy of American poets.org. I have some poems up there, including uh, knucklehead. Um, then another poem, thank you, Jesus and crescendo, which also talks about um, child rearing and spanking actually in, in lots of other things. Um, so it's out there and I'm trying to, I'm trying to work on book three. <laughs> it's hard. But it's trying. Great. So wait, what's the, the name of your latest, your last book is? A More Perfect Union, which came out in 2021. And so okay. More Perfect Union cover. Yeah. And here's Hank, Great. which came out in 2016. Perfect. Also, any social media handles? Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, you um, on? I'm on mm-hmm. Twitter at cross underscore Davis. I'm on Instagram at Haint Poet. Um, so, and then we have, my husband and I have a website, uh, poetsandparents.com, um, that we try and keep updated and it gives you information. Like he and I just won awards from Maryland, from the Maryland State Arts Council. Um, yeah, he, he won a, he won a $10,000 regional prize. I won a $25,000 statewide prize. (laughs) Right on. It's like poetry. Who knew? (laughs) I love it. I love it. That's great. So I'm assuming you believe poetry has a great healing qualities. So if you can share, what is the potential of changing the narrative of poetry? Mm. The funny thing is the narrative is being changed right now in poetry. Thanks to organizations mm-hmm. like Have Canem, which just received this huge award from, uh, I think, the National Book Critics Circle. And how it's over 400 fellows deep has created Pulitzer Prize winners, um, poet laureates and MacArthur geniuses and Guggenheim fellows and the list goes on. Um, you know, poetry, the narrative is changing. And what, what is also happening is we're seeing a rise in indigenous poets. We're seeing a rise in Asian American, Pacific Islander poets, Latin X poets, all of this. When Cave Canem started in, in 1996, other organizations realized the wealth of opportunity that could be achieved by nurturing their own poets. And so you have places like Kundiman, which is which nurtures Asian American poets, and Canto Mundo or Letras Latinas, um, or Inde Napo, which you know nurtures in- indigenous poets. All these organizations have sprung up, and they're creating these incredible, or I shouldn't even say creating, they're sculpting and giving a platform for all these incredible poets and voices that have been marginalized for so long, and now it's the marginalized story that's taking center stage, rightly so, and that's where the focus should be. Because I just can't get enough of hearing these narratives from different cultures and traditions that have been silenced for so long. And so that's, it's changing the narrative. And that's why Kafe kind of got that award, because you cannot look at the world of American letters and not see the impact of Kafe Kano. You just cannot. It is this, it's just changed, it's changed American letters for good. Um, I love it. Yeah. I love it. So, you mentioned um, Letras Latinas. Mm-hmm. That was something that you did. It was slated during the pandemic. And how, how did you talk about that for a second before we sign up? Oh, sure. That was, um, I, I worked with um, Heidi uh, Andres Restrepo Rhodes, another poet um, 
uh, and through Letras Latinas, we both put together a video segment. I recorded poems, she recorded poems, and then they were all edited together. Um, you know, each individual segments, but in one thing. And that was through Letras Latinas, um, which is out of Notre Dame. And yeah, and but they still have a or they did. They used to have an office here in D.C. The pandemic shut that down. But I'm still in touch with Francisco Edigon, who's an incredible poet and the director of Letras Latinas. And he reached out to me uh, to create this during the pandemic as a way uh, to still give an opportunity to have poetry out there. Um, to share poetry when we needed it most. And actually, I would argue we always need it um, as a counterbalance to so much of what goes on, to so much of the horror and the shock um, that happens in this world and the inhumanity. That We always need poetry um, to remind us of what, what good lies within us and, and how to silence ourselves so we can hear it. Um, but yeah, so that's how that came about. That was, a, you know, Heidi's an incredible poet and I really loved what, what was put together. That's amazing. Look, I, I think poetry is necessary. I also think it tells a lot of truth that we don't always have the language for ourselves. And um, it can speak to us in ways that can really feel empowering and validating. So I appreciate your voice, your language, your presence. Thank you so much for coming on. I know that it's a little bit chaotic trying to organize and schedule these things, particularly when everybody's life is so busy. So I just want to say sincerely, thank you for coming on and sharing your word. Very important, and we appreciate. It. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for making the space because we have to change the narrative. We have to introduce different ways to look at this world and how to be in it. Because obviously, I mean, also, I I'm one with down with. I want the patriarchy gone too, um, but <laughs> don't even go there. <laughs> That'll be another show we come exactly. on. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, we have to change the narrative. We have to. Um, we have to have something that reflects who we can be. Uh, I want that more perfect union that we have not gotten yet. So, For your children and all the rest. <laughs> thank you, sis. All right, take care. Bye-bye. JD and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IamMusicGroup.com and the team will hit you back. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with JD Fuller.